The Effenrad Snowboard Podcast is presented by Vans. Season 8 of Effenrad is sponsored by Wired Snowboards and on Optics, the Boardroom Snowboard Shop, findanepicagent.com, and Tribute Board Shop in Nelson, B.C. This real estate secret could save you thousands. Never contact a realtor yourself. Instead, have Find an Epic Agent refer you to proven local realtors. Why? We pay you from the commission the realtor pays Find an Epic Agent for your introduction. You get the best real estate agent working for you, and we put your money back in your pocket. In over 30 countries, Find an Epic Agent makes it cheaper to buy or sell a home. That's why it pays to click findanepicagent.com before contacting a realtor. Special thanks to all you listeners who've already subscribed to our YouTube channel. If you haven't, pause the show, go hit subscribe on that button. Effin' Rad Snowboarding on YouTube. Thanks. Support also comes from DeKine, Mount Seymour, Grouse Mountain, Pro Standard GoPro Accessories, and Volcom Outerwear. Special thanks this episode to Beneath Base Layer, LibTech Snowboards. You can see James Johnson's artwork on Pete Sari's Pro Model LibTech, The Double Dip. And big shout out to Pete and Mervin for letting us record at the Squim headquarters. And one more special thanks. This place is awesome.com. James Johnson is a clinket artist and carver who grew up snowboarding in Alaska. He participated in last year's Natural Selection Tour as a keynote speaker at the Jackson Hole Stop, educating the snowboard event attendees on his culture and the line form artwork they're famous for. James has dedicated his life to traditional clinket art and to being an important voice of his ancestral history out in the world. This year, James has projects with Vans, LibTech, Volcom, Smartwool, and Yeti, among others. I'm riding his Vans boots. They are super sick. I was honored to meet and speak with James Johnson at the Mervyn Factory Cedar Room out on the Olympic Peninsula. I've been doing the art form for shoot since for 14 years now. You know, it wasn't really until the last like four or five years that things kind of took off. You're kind of straddling two worlds, right? Yeah. Like, like your art stuff that doesn't have anything to do with the snowboard skateboard industry is very, very traditional stuff. Exactly. The, the, the discussion is always, you know, traditional versus contemporary within the clinket art form and kind of like which realm do you lie in? Um, the foundation for the art form um, goes back thousands of years to my ancestors in Alaska. And that never changes. That's a solid foundation. There's a lot of rules and guidelines that go within the art form in order for it to, to be proper. Um, for me, um, I love doing the traditional work, the work that can exist, you know, thousands of years ago, seamlessly within our culture. But then um, working, you know, in a different realm, in the more contemporary realm, I think as an artist, you could have both feet in each of those realms. And, you know, working with people like Mervin, you know, doing LibTech graphics, working with Volcom, working with Vans, Smartwool, uh, Yeti, all these companies um, is great. It's like really incredible opportunity. And um, they're completely on board with putting out something that I'm comfortable with and that honors my heritage and honors my culture. So, and um, 
yeah, it's been incredible. Let's go back to the beginning. Where did you grow up? Yeah, born and raised in Juneau, Alaska. Um, growing up there, it's such a beautiful place. It's um, the Clinket people have you know lived in Southeast Alaska for thousands of years. That's where our culture originated from. That's where the art form originated from. But yeah, growing up in Juneau, um, small town, like 30,000 people, landlocked. You know, there's no roads in or out. And you're right there in the ocean. And then um, we're fortunate. I grew up snowboarding um, since I was, you know, like fourth grade, like going up on the hill and riding. And um, we have a really incredible home mountain called Eagle Crest. And it's like... um, Back then, you don't realize how special it was to leave and and think back to the the days of of learning how to ride that mountain. But it's really, really diverse and really challenging, and it it shapes really strong snowboarders out of out of Eagle Crest. You know, so I, I grew up with, you know, Mark Lambic. He was in the crew. Bubba Weedman, Dave Furman. Like we'd go ride every weekend as kids, and. Um, yeah, that's it's it was really special to grow up there. Was it a part of like a school program? Was it like rental? Yeah, it was. And the, every yeah. year you'd go up and do like the school school week at Eagle Crest. Sick. And we had always ditch our instructor like the first day. We were, you, you go get the get to go up and you get like two hours like ride on your own. Then you got to meet your instructor at like you know eleven. And we never met him. <laughs> and so, like, man, we got kicked off the mountain. We had to go back to detention the next day. But, yeah, they, that was part of the program, though. You know, like, yeah. Um, you, yeah, you go load up the bus and, like, go up on the hill, you know. That's crazy awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And and so you've known Lando since? Man, we're little kids, like, playing, like, little league baseball together, like, playing fo- little junior football, you know? And, like, when, you know, when you, then you started snowboarding, and he was, like, you know, figuring it out. He, he I don't remember, but he tells people that I was the first person to teach him how 360. Oh, which that's is awesome. kind of cool. Yeah, that's super sick. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, then you saw, like, like how he just started progressing, you know, and getting better and better each year. And so like, you know, we've been following that progression since we we're younger, you see, and it was really cool to see like where he's at now. And it's like his career, you know, all the things that he's done, like we're everyone there in Juno is like super proud of Mark. Yeah. Oh, that's sick. Mm-hmm. So what's your first um, introduction into traditional art? Um, man, it was like, I I didn't get into it until 2008 and, um, backing up before that I took a carving class, like randomly, um, just out of high school and I was like 19, I took a carving class and I still have, we carved a little bear mask and it was like, it was super small and it took me six months to do it. And I cut my hand a bunch and like, it, it was so difficult. I remember like doing it. But the, after the class was over, the instructor let us keep a, the crooked knife we use. And I still use it today. It's like, Same one. It's like one of my number one tools these oh, days. Oh, wow. Epic. But um, yeah, and then I was exposed to it then. But um, something within me just said, it was like a calling almost saying like, this is what you need to do. You need to pursue this art form. Um, and I started, you know, dedicating my life to it. And 
and learning the fundamentals of the art form and learning the stories and um you know it's the art form it's not something you just dabble in you know if you want to be really good at it you have to dedicate your whole being to it and um yeah it's been you know most people are sitting there searching for like their purpose in life like what what am i meant to do you know and this, whether I chose to do it or it chose me, like this is exactly what I'm meant to do. And it's going to be a lifelong of learning. You know, I'm going to spend my, the rest of my life carving, you know. What was the difference, you think, from the carving class that you took? Was that just that kind of, you know, momentum of graduating high school and being like, okay, I got to grow up. I got to try to get a job um, or something like that. My My dad was pretty artistic he he had a good form of balance with his drawing and it wasn't wasn't clink it or anything but then i always had this kind of artistic side where um i saw composition and balance um from like an early age and um yeah it was it was i don't know like a calling to do it but it things really shifted in, in 2012 I'd only been carving for four years and learning the art form. And, and there's a big show in my hometown um, called Sea Alaska. It's a celebration juried art show. And it features the best Clinkett, Haida, Shimshian artists for a celebration. And the, the lead juror who was selecting the work was Nathan Jackson. Nathan's like the, one of the all-time greatest Clinkett artists living. Um, incredible work that Nathan does. And he selected my work to be chosen for it. And it was such an honor, you know, and, and I was so nervous, you know, I had no idea like the work I was doing. And, you know, Nathan, I asked him, I, I was in Arizona and I asked him, hey, can you critique my work and like help me out? And he basically said, look, like you're good. I see it. That's why I chose this. But the work you're doing right now is garbage. Oh, wow. And he said like, but then he said, this is what you need to work on. And the, the foundation for the art form is called a form line. Like form lines, like all the images you see um, visually, like painted, the painted lines you see on clan houses and designs is called form line. And Nathan said, focus on drawing, focus on your form line, because the better you are at drawing, the better carver you're going to be, because it's going to teach you this balance and composition. And so um, from then, you know, I spent years and years and years studying and practicing and drawing. And then things, you know, started to click, you know, like seven years later, you know, that's how long it took to, yeah. to get to kind of where I'm on this like trajectory that I'm on right now, you know, but the artists I look up to, man, they're all in their seventies and eighties, you know, and been pushing it forever and you know they're all going to pass too with unfinished work sitting on the table and so like for me like that's exactly the path that i'm on that's what i've dedicated my life to to doing a whole life of art yeah yeah but the crazy thing too there's no word for art in our language you know so like the pieces you do are so much so much bigger than just trying to create something that's beautiful you know, the history of our people was an oral history that was passed down from generation to generation. And the, the art form was seamlessly integrated as part of that story and that history of our people. And the story could be told through anything. Be, be told through a kutia, a totem pole, a clan house, a bentwood box, a mask, a paddle, a rattle. All these things could tell that story of our people. 
of this is who we are and this is where we came from. And so like that, you know, you start thinking about that when you do your work, you know, and um, being aware of, of the work you're doing and you start connecting things. And it, everything becomes way more meaningful when you work on a piece. It's so much more than trying to just carve it a certain way. You're carving it, you're thinking of, you know, it, it's going to be worn, you know. Traditionally, that mask would not be put on the wall and be danced in and worn and used. You know, everything in our culture is functional. You know, it's served a purpose. But as, you know, again, like the skill that our ancestors created, um, that's something that we're all striving for today. Like every Northwest Coast artist will tell you, like, they set the standard for what we're doing today. And we're not there yet. You know, these days we have every tool imaginable to create the work. But the reason why their art is so much better than ours is because they have this tremendous knowledge that we don't have. And we're all, we're just trying to get, get that back. And that's going to take lifetimes. Yeah. How, how, um, are the stories shared amongst, uh, your people? Like how, how do you get the stories for the pieces that you're doing? I'm, uh, I'm Dakla Wadi, which is Killer Whale Clan. My family lineage is Dakla Wadi from Hootsunu Kwan, Angoon, Alaska. My family lineage, my grandfathers were all Daklawedi chiefs. Uh, my great great grandfather was Chief Gushtihin um, of Hutsunwu. And like he, his name means spray off the dorsal fin of Killer Whale. Wow. Yeah, that's what I have tattooed on my hand, my clan crest of Killer Whale. And um, those stories are passed down traditionally, like within the clan, the clan origin stories. And um, our culture is matrilineal you follow your mother's clan. And when you marry, you marry the opposite. You know, the two top clans in our culture are Eagle and Raven. And that preserves the balance. Like my mother is Eagle, so I'm Eagle. My my wife is Raven and my son is Raven. But all these things, like the our culture and, and everything is always about um, balance. Um, Professor Stephen Langan of University of Alaska Anchorage has been studying Clinket culture for like 40 years. And he kind of, he coined the term obligatory reciprocity when talking about our culture. That means it's a necessary balance that must be kept within all things. The structure of our clans, the inter, our interaction with people, our interaction in the, the world around us and the environment, and also the art form has to maintain this balance. Wow. That's deep. That's deep. <laughs> Lay that on you. Stuff. No, I love this. This is. I. I just. Uh, I'm. I'm so honored that you're sharing this with me because you know, for a lot of people, your exposure to original nations art, or even just your basic knowledge of original nations, most people don't know there were hundreds of nations on just this landmass that we're on now. Oh yeah. Right. Like people think, you know, I think the majority of people would think maybe five to 10 different Mm -hmm. groups, but we're talking hundreds and hundreds of groups. Yeah. The culture is striving in Northwest coast. Um, For me, I'm Clinket. Clinket is the northernmost tribe of Northwest coast people. Mm -hmm. Um, We inhabited up to Yakutat, then South to Ketchikan and inland, uh, inland Clinket and Yukon. And then below us, you know, you have Haida, Shimshian. Then it gets into BC where there's, you know, a ton of different tribes, all with their own language, all with their own culture, their own beliefs. Um, 
you know, their own origin stories, everything changes. And so like this rich culture existed for thousands of years um, along the coast. It was really rich, um, you know, and it's, uh, it's a pretty touchy thing that we start talking about colonization and like um, what happened to our people. But to put it in perspective, you know, we just went through or kind of going through this pandemic, right? This virus is spreading and people are dying. But smallpox, you know, in the mid-1800s, wiped out three-quarters of the Northwest, Northwest Coast population. This virus that there's no cure for, for the indigenous people, and they're dying. And so you look at the, this knowledge, you know, I talked about earlier, that was passed down generation to generation, was severed right there. You know, people, for example, in the art form that had, you know, all this knowledge and stories and knew, knew everything about the art form, that had been passed down to them and they're ready to pass on the next. They couldn't, they died. And so like, that was the kind of like the, a turning point for Northwest coast people, you know, these things, the art form, um, was, was pushed to the brink of extinction, you know? And there's a point in time too, where you couldn't even speak your language, you couldn't even practice the art form. And the pieces were taken out of Alaska, taken out of the Northwest coast, um, just blatantly taken. Um, and, uh, you know, it wasn't until this last year that we, we've known about the horror stories about residential schools and how that affected, you know, the youth and, uh, it was cultural assimilation and genocide that occurred with all these indigenous youth. And we've known about that for a long time. Our elders have spoken about it. And, um, I'm really it's, it's good that it got pushed into the, the spotlight and people started wanting to know the truth of what really happened, you know. Because you see something, you see the art form, you see the people, and everything is so much bigger than that. You know, you, you're carrying along this, these generations on your back. You know, the more I got into the art form, I realized the responsibility I had. It's so much more than just creating a car something that's pretty. You know, you're, you're carrying on this, this, this culture and this tradition, you know. But I, I welcome that weight on my shoulders. I want it, you know. It's a gift to be able to create these, these images and carry our culture forward. It's a gift. My ancestors placed in my hands and said, here, take it. You know, it's your turn. Carry this through your lifetime. Then when I'm done, I pass it on. You know, that's what's going to bring it, bring it forward again. Yeah. We got our family a, uh, a family pass to the Museum of Anthropology mm-hmm. in, in Vancouver at UBC, the university. And, you know, I'd been there before a couple of times, mm-hmm. but I felt a calling to, to go a little bit deeper with it. Like, there's so much there to look so at. So much. It's yeah. unbelievable yeah. the number of pieces just drawers after drawers, drawers endless drawers. Yeah. And that was where I realized that the story I was given in non-residential school, just in, in Canadian public school was a bullshit story. Yeah. It was obvious the, the, that there was craftsmen, that there were hyper intelligent people like before, you know, this generation where we've got electronics and all sorts of things and doctors and lawyers, are the kind of, you know, top of, of society as far as, you know, people looking at 
the professionals who's, who are, you know, the scientists or whatever, you can see in these objects, first you can see in these objects that there were craftsmen that didn't just whittle a little thing while they were sitting at the side of a, a river waiting for a fish to go in a net or something. Like this was an obvious traditional form of carving mm-hmm. in all sorts of different mediums that had to be passed from one master to a student. Oh yeah. It, it, it was so obvious when I saw that. And then maybe a few weeks after that, I realized, Oh shit, all this shit is stolen. Like everything in here, like everything in here was taken without permission of yeah. the whole collection. Yeah. Because even where it says like given with permission by, you know, Larry and, and Bonnie Smith or whatever. Yep. Well, where the fuck did they get it from? Yeah. The, that's just some yeah, white yeah. people that had some gold it's, stuff. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, you know, it's when they banned, you know, you weren't allowed to do the art form. You weren't allowed to, this is the turn of the, you know, early 1900s. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, expeditions went to Alaska to collect the last of the art form. And that meant by taking, by getting it by any means necessary. And it wasn't just a couple items. It was thousands of pieces left. You know, when I got into it, I asked my dad, I said, is there anything left of our grandfathers? Anything at all? And there's nothing, no, nothing left. Not one piece. No. The beautiful Nakin, the Chilkat blankets, you know, his chief blanket, Chiefs would usually wear the beautiful chill cat blankets. And someone in the family sold it for, it's, it's priceless, you know? Right. And like, but that, that is like a testament too to, to, to Northwest coast art, you know, like you, you see it in these museum displays and, and the discussions like, you know, <clears throat> you have these artifacts that are culture, cultural significance to our people. Does it belong in a museum or does it belong back with the tribe? You know, what right do they have to have these objects? But lucky for us in the United States, you have um, repatriation where um, a, lot of, a lot of museums have given back a lot of the objects back to the tribe. Good. Which has been great. I work with a museum in, in Denver, the Museum of Nature and Science in, in Denver, and the head curator is Chip Colwell. And and Chip wrote a whole book on repatriation. You know, and he's given back over 2,000 pieces from their collection back right. to the people, which is awesome. But, um, you know, for me, like, I, I know all these horrible things have happened to our people, right? You acknowledge it. It's, it's terrible. You carry it. You carry that with you. Part of you carries that with you on your back everywhere you go. But for me, you know, I think for us as a people, like we need to pick up these broken pieces that we have left, and let's put this thing back together the best way we know how and move forward again. That's why it's important for me to carve, you know, as much as I can. Carve these traditional pieces. Carve these you know, these clan hats and carve these bowls and carve these masks and carve these things that um, our people had, you know. My dad told me too, like before he died, he said, you know what, because he saw how much effort you put into a piece. You put, it's hard. The art form is hard. No way around it. You look at it, it's hard. And you put everything you have into it, blood, sweat, tears, everything into creating a work. 
And he saw how easy it is to get attached to that work. But he told me, he said, don't get attached to your work. He said, focus on your skill. He said, your skill is always going to improve. When you finish a piece, he said, you let go of it. Like you let a balloon go in the sky. It goes where it needs to go. Whether it goes to a museum or a collector, or I give it to my son too for, to keep in our family, you know, for him after I'm gone. But he said, like, that it goes back to their traditional ways, you know, like the totem pole carvers. You know, the second that they had finished carving a totem pole, the carvers could no longer touch it anymore. It didn't belong to them. It belonged to the people. Wow. You know? I've been reading a few books on traditional. Uh, they're calling it in traditional environmental knowledge. So this is when um, original nations professors come in and study because uh, they're trying to take it out. I don't know why they're taking the like traditional indigenous knowledge or like they've created that moniker, I guess, to be neutral. I'm not sure, but I've been reading books on it and in every direction is unlimited knowledge. Yeah. Like it, it would take a lifetime <clears throat> to learn about mosses. Mm-hmm. It would take a lifetime to learn about you know, pick a plant, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? You know? Yeah. And um, what I'm hearing you saying is just reinforcing, yeah, well, there, it did take, it took generations, took tens of thousands of years yeah. to gather the knowledge that was broken 100 years ago. Yeah. Right? Not that long ago. It's, some of it's gone. Mm-hmm. And even the methods for getting it back. Yeah. It's um, a balance. You know, like these days you see... With the environment, you see how much we're taking. We're just taking and taking and taking and taking until what's what's left, right? But like our beliefs, you know, is this balance that you have. And it's a respect. You know, humans, animals, the earth, all are, exist on the same plane in our beliefs. And you give respect to everything because everything has spirit. Everything is alive. And these days, I mean, you see how out of balance everyone is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> out of balance with each other, you know, out of balance with the environment. Um, this capitalism take as much as I can right now thing. And so going, looking back and like looking back at the old ways, you know, is the way forward, you know, and living in this balance and recalibrating. I think being in the outdoor industry too, it's pretty, I mean, everyone's really passionate about the mountains and the environment. And so like everyone has a real um, passion for like, how can we fix this thing? How could we be, be better? You know, mm-hmm. and that indigenous knowledge is, is right there. I think you, you touched on probably the most important thing, like to really embody what it means to look at rice as a person. Right. And, and we're, we're seeing laws being made around the world where rivers are being acknowledged as having the rights of a person, personhood, because, I mean, that's the kind of language that we've pigeonholed the entire world into, because we've got this kind of like law system. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting because most of the trouble with the communication is going to come from language, I think. That's where we're going to really need to develop better sharing skills in language 
because we've used the word laws for a hundred years over here to mean rules, right? Laws are something that you can't break. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like gravity, you can't, it doesn't work any other way or reciprocation. Like what you're talking about. Like if you hurt someone it's on a long enough timeline, you're going to get that hurt back. Mm -hmm. And if you help someone, it's, those are laws. Yeah. Rules are like, don't smoke marijuana, right? That can change. And we've seen it change in our lifetime. It was like, go to jail for the rest of your life when we were kids. And now it's... Now it's like, take this, it's going to help you. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think the biggest thing that I've, that I'm trying to internalize on that is definitely the personhood of all things. I, I heard someone say yesterday rocks and I was like, mm, rocks are, that's a hard one for me to wrap my head around. And then she said, but I look at them and they're all different. Just like people, every rock mm. is different. And I'm yeah. like, okay, yeah, well, that's a there step it there. <laughs> it's, it, 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 it does take effort because you know, the education system is, it's uh, I don't even want to say it's brainwashing or whatever. It's, it, it was an attempt that people were making to do good in the world, right? On some level, there was intentions there to do good. Mm -hmm. Some really major things got missed in the accounting nature. Everything, everything that's not, that's, that, okay, if I get, I'm going to try and explain this. If I go too long here, I'll just cut myself off. <laughs> in, I, I don't know when, but a couple of hundred years ago, people around the world were like, slavery sucks. It's that sucks. We don't want to do that. That's it's every human has uh, the right to be free. Right. And that's two things in one. The rights thing is where everything goes kind of crazy and haywire. Because once you start telling people they have rights and other people don't have rights, you know, so now all people have rights. But if you just expand, expand your personhood from human beings to every other life form, we're not even close to that yet. Like cows have rights, chickens have rights, rice has rights, rocks have rights. Once we're there, we're going to be in a very different place than we are right now. And there's probably people listening to this that are like, that's ridiculous. But yeah. that's the only way out, really, Yeah, yeah. is to recognize. Now, you can end the rights thing. That's what we need to do, is we need to look to traditional uh, environmental knowledge. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a consciousness shift where people are... Um they're looking for the truth and like they're, they're looking for some things that are real and things that are um, kind of like they're, they want to like see, see the world through what's really happening. And I think this with the environment and things like that, like it's, it's not going to happen overnight, you know, but you have to, you put the idea out there to people Mm -hmm. And the idea just grows and like it passes on to other people and it's a slow progress, you know, mm -hmm. but like, I, I, I believe like you put good energy out there and you're a good person. Like you, you attract good things to you. And I've found that true for, you know, my, what I'm doing, you know, and I think you lead by example and like those, those, those things have a effect. They have effect, you know, it passes on to the next person, you know, but I don't know. I, I'm, I guess, optimistic. I, I am too. Yeah. Because if I'm like, I grew up totally, 
as white as a person could be. And I knew there was something missing. And I, it doesn't take much. You can Google it now. You can just read a few really good books and you go, oh, my God. Anytime someone says the rights of anything, they're actually talking about something that's not natural. It's, it, that's about power. That's about dividing up your access to things. Mm-hmm. If you flip the script and go to the original nation's knowledge, everybody knows its responsibilities. Mm-hmm. So humans are the last to the, to the game, and the rest of nature has been here forever. We're guests in oh, a yeah. beautiful world, yeah. and we're acting as though we own the place. Yeah. So come in with responsibilities, like you would at a, somebody's house that you really want to impress. Yeah. Keep tidying up after yourself and don't make messes places and don't take things that aren't yours. Yeah. Well, like the earth is going to be in balance no matter what. And like the effect that we have on it is, is going to balance itself out. And that's what it's doing. But yeah, like you said, it's a, it's a respect. It's a respect thing. You know, and respect starts with yourself too, you know, and then move on to, to other things. But Again, like it's a consciousness shift that I think is going to take place or needs to take place. And I think it's happening. It's just not, not quick. It sounds like your dad imparted on you a lot of really good knowledge. And I mean, it sounds also like he had a lot of reasons to be quite bitter and upset and, and maybe go down a really dark sure. path. Yeah, no, um, I took care of uh, both of my parents before they passed away. Um, my mom asked for help, and I took care of her. I moved her from Alaska to my home in Arizona, same with my dad, and took care of them, you know. And, um, yeah, it's it, it, it wasn't easy, you know, put the stress of, you know, my wife. But, you know, and the other thing, too, like, it, they got to have a really good relationship with my son, and and that is invaluable but yeah my dad um yeah i mean he grew up as i mean he had to go to residential school you know and so the culture was stripped to him and so the second i said i want to pursue this he was my number one supporter you know he said absolutely let's do it you know because he he saw it being it was taken from him you know, it was taken from his dad, my grandfather. And so, like, I carry that with me, too. You know, I carry all those things that happened and push forward. But I'm, I'm thankful, thankful for him, thankful for the time we spent together and thankful for him to show me the, you know, this is the path. This is where you go. Yeah, that's really epic that he didn't lose that path. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, that was the, I don't know about in the States, but definitely in Canada, what I've read, it was, I mean, publicly, you can read it. You, if, you, if you just Google it, like, they were trying to eradicate oh, native absolutely. culture from Canada. They, yeah. they were trying to assimilate people, and if they were resistant, they would kill them. Yep, exactly. I mean, our people lived in this balance. They they lived off the land. They sustained this way of life for generations. You know, um, salmon, principal food source for a lot of nations along the coast. 
And during colonization, you know, you had canneries and fisheries come in and people will just stake claim on, you know, the, the clan would own a certain part of the fishing grounds. And they'd say, this is where we get our food source. That'd feed everybody. There's no I in this clan. It's, the food is for everybody. The art is for everybody. And as soon as people started coming in saying, no, that's not yours anymore, this is mine, you know, it all is all coming to an end. You know? Devastation, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's so, it's awful to hear about how shitty it was, colonization. It's very uplifting to hear, you know, stories from you and from other people that have, are celebrated now, right? Like, that's that's the next move. Yeah. Is that people um, that are doing good things and, and bringing back the traditional art, that that in itself. And it's crazy that you said that there was no word for art because it's, that, that shifted my thinking in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's akin to having a book to read that is in a language that you can learn that yeah. that will connect you with people that have been on this land for tens of thousands of years. Oh yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it was the, you know, it's so much bigger. You look at a piece in a museum, like you go in there and you see a bowl, a Bentwood bowl or a box, a Bentwood <laughs> box, and it's heavily patinaed and you can't, it's, you know, hundreds of years old, but that piece was uh, completely integrated with in, in our culture. You know, that box, the ones that are carved and painted, um, those are typically um, owned by high-ranking chiefs of a clan. And we'd store our sacred ceremonial items in those Bentwood boxes. You know, the foundation for our culture is our kuik, which is our potlatch. That was when you'd see, that's like the central nucleus for our culture. You know, a, a kuik. Kuik means to give. And so you'd host a, a kuik, and, you know, the art form is on its true stage. You'd see the true intention of the art form on display. You know, the masks were worn. The, the beautiful bowls were used to serve food to everyone that came there. And um, the the Bentwood boxes would, would hold our sacred ceremonial objects. It's called our atu whether it be a clan hat, and they'd, or they'd bring it out and, and wear it just for that occasion. You know, then colonization, the first thing they did was ban the kuik. Yeah. You weren't allowed to do that anymore. You weren't allowed to sing songs. You weren't allowed to celebrate your culture, you know. And a lot of the atu, those pieces were just taken. Huh. You know, pieces that had been within the clan for generations, you know, scattered all over the world. And so, you know, that's another, <laughs> another reason, another piece of, you know, why I do what I do. I want to bring that, bring it back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, from what I understand, the potlatch. I mean, philosophically speaking, it just makes so much sense. It's the opposite of consumerism. It's putting the highest rank and highest um, form of admiration in the community on the person that gives the most. It's the absolute opposite of what we've got. Mm -hmm. If you had a yacht, 
you will give it to someone. <laughs> yeah, you, you give away a, a lot of, you know, everyone that would show up would receive a gift. Everyone would be fed, you know. And it would take years to plan a, a, a coup week. You know, you had, to, you had to make sure you had enough food to provide for that occasion. So, yeah, it was no big thing. You see a clan hat and you see the rings on top of it, right, stacked up. Mm-hmm. Each ring represents a coup week that that chief held. Wow. That's what that represents. So you see some museums, <clears throat> you see them stacked up really high. That means he's hosted a lot of potlatches for his people. That's super sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so glad that you that there's that there are people that are still practicing this. That the knowledge wasn't completely severed, right? Yeah, it, it's. I mean, right now, language is a real crisis within all indigenous um, cultures. A lot of the elders are dying without passing on um, the knowledge that they have, speaking fluently in your native language. Um, I work with Sea Alaska Heritage Institute back in my hometown, Juneau, Alaska, and they've done a really amazing job at preserving um, the Clinket language and making it accessible for the younger generations to learn it, you know. And um, yeah, that's another piece, another piece of the puzzle that we're we're trying to build up again. I mean, there was a great sadness for generations, and that was intentionally put there, obviously. But do you see kids of this upcoming generation excited to learn their language, excited to learn the stories? Yeah. Um, what's great is we're, we're sitting here at Mervin Manufacturing, LibTech, and um, I've worked with them for, I'm on my fifth graphic working with Pete um, with Lib, and it's been an incredible ride. But Pete um, donated a portion of the last four boards that we've done um, back to Sea Alaska Heritage for the construction of a, a new arts campus that, that just opened in June. And um, with that campus, they're teaching uh, not only Clinket art, Clinket Haida, Shimshan art, but also they're um, doing language programs for a lot of the youth. So that was really awesome. Like, man, such, such a like, such an, an honor, an honorable thing. And um, really happy that I could work with someone like LibTech that gives back like that. Were they the first in the snowboard industry that you worked with, art-wise? No, I mean, shoot, I've been um, fortunate to work with a lot of different companies um, in the last four years. Um, Being an artist for LibTech is like a dream come true, like growing up lifelong snowboarder. And everything almost happened really organically with everybody. Um, I never approached anyone saying, hey, let's you know, hounding them, they would say, hey, like, we like your work. Let's, what do you think about this? You know, and um, yeah, working with LibTech, um, Volcom's been supporting me too for the last four or five years, which has been awesome. Right. Um, such a cool company, like such an artist-driven company. You, you go to the headquarters and it's like, you know, wall-to-wall art everywhere. And you, you it's amazing. Um, I also work with... Uh, with Lando, with Ingrained Inc., which is awesome. Just artist collaboration. Um, that's been been great. Smart Wool, I just signed with them last year. Alex Pashley at Smart Wool has been awesome. Um, they, they donated also to Sea Alaska Heritage. Really generous. Um, donated to some youth programs up there. And then um, anytime I'm traveling and doing a, 
something at a school, like they'll send out product to hand out to all the, the kids, cool. which is awesome. Yeah. Um, Vans, um, really excited. I'm working with them with Matt Patty. Um, they sport me for the last like five years now. And um, we actually developed a whole uh, collection that's coming out in September. And Vans, we took a portion of from that collection and we donated it to Sea Alaska to uh, kind of kick off a snow program for Native youth up there, where right. we're going to get Native youth on the hill back in my hometown, Eaglecrest. Dude. So this will be like the first year that it's kind of, that program's coming together, but um, it's all those companies like giving back and supporting um, my clan and my people is such an honor. And was that something that you came into the relationships with that in mind or is it something pretty organically? Just, yeah. yeah. It, it's like they, they see like how passionate I am about the art form and, and how it goes back to the people, you know? And, um, you know, if I get in a position where I could help, help the native youth, I'm going to do it, you know? And like, and so when these opportunities presented themselves, you know, I said, Hey, like, what do you think about doing this? And I said, yeah, absolutely. You know? And, um, the native youth need that encouragement. They, they need that help and they need that support. You know, they need, yeah, they, they need to, to understand like you could go after what you really want to do with your life and obtain these things. You know, this, this stuff is possible, you know, what would you say to, to listeners that, that feel like they're already there? I mean, as a white person, I am exposed to other white people that are like, what are they whining about? Yeah. I mean, I, I live in Phoenix, Arizona and, and like, um, I drive through the reservation up in the Northern part of the state, man. And it is desolate. It is poor. And those kids don't have hope. You know, they don't have hope to get out and, and go after it where there's follow just their passion of what they want to do. And so like, um, I've done a lot of talks. I've, I've been a, a speaker for, um, a lot of different youth programs for native youth and like um we're trying to figure out how to get these kids hope you know and 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 get give them encouragement and it's you know it's gonna take a lot it's gonna take a lot of work to do it but um that's also something that i've dedicated you know what i do to giving back you know traditionally that's what has to happen obviously right mm -hmm. like this isn't I could see it from the moment I walked in here. Your art's not about um, uh, like gaining some form. I asked you, are you a master artist? You're like, I don't really, <laughs> that's not something I'm. <laughs> not on my name tag. Yeah. Right, right, right. And, yeah. and so there's not a lot of ego in what you're doing. Um, but there's a lot of joy I can see in the successes that you're having that are humongous. You want to talk about the Google thing? Yeah. Um, well, like kind of going back to what my dad told me, like just focus on your skill and like, that's always going to improve. That's always going to expand and get better. And that's lifelong. You're going to do that. Don't focus on the outcome, focus on improving. And, um, yeah, like uh, this last was in, in May again, like I get these emails and uh, it's like, I think it's spam because it's like, you know, <laughs> email from Google saying, Hey, like we want to hire you to do designs for our homepage, you know? Wow. And, um, yeah, that, that I just finished that commission 
um, did four designs. Um, it's going to be for Native American Heritage Month in November. And so they'll be on the Google homepage. You can see form line design and also a story about what you're looking at. And um, what an incredible platform. You know, they said in the contract, like, it's going to be seen by a billion people. And, like, they weren't joking, <laughs> you know. Wow. But, like, you know, you expose that, you know, the clinket art form on that platform is incredible. Yeah, it's such a weird thing, this, like, because when you first say Google, I'm like, eh, aren't those guys, they used to say do no evil or whatever that was there. <laughs> and they've changed their motto from do no evil. So you're kind of like, I'm looking at it going, well, aren't they like a little world dominating kind of colonizistic in the, but then when you say their platform is going to put your art in front of a billion people and that you're the one doing the art. So it's going to have the integrity of James Johnson. All of a sudden it's giving me goosebumps. I'm like, wow, that's yeah, probably the biggest platform for first nations art ever. <laughs> right. It's got, I don't know. Yeah, maybe, but it's, um, yeah, I just take it in stride with the, that, all those things that happen and, you know, be professional with what you're doing and, and, um, do good work, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You've got the integrity in the, in life. It, you just, you know, I, I just see it in your eyes. I see it in your work. It's, it's really, really inspiring. And I think I've had a lot of conversations with um, pro snowboarders who've gone on to be parents and to a person, everybody wants their kid to find something that they're passionate about mm -hmm. that mirrors how passionate we were about snowboarding, say, for example. And it's apparent that you've found it in, in creating storytelling yeah through traditional art yeah no i'm lucky i'm lucky that this chose me you know it's like you know it's you know i'm lucky to do this every day lucky to dedicate my life to something i could imagine like put you know doing anything else than this and what i'm doing i think it's important to put it out there too that you tried when you were younger and it just didn't click at the oh it didn't click for a lot of years i'll tell you that <laughs> Yeah, say, even when you went back to it, it was yeah. No, it's man. This is a hard. It's a hard thing to to do. It's supposed to be hard. Um, I'm teaching right now in at the Port Townsend School of Woodworking. Um, I just finished my first course, uh, Clinket Paddle Carving class. Rad. You know, passing on like what I know on to others. And um, cool thing too with them, they hold two spots per class for Indigenous um, carvers, where they put them on full scholarship. They Rad. just show up and I'll teach them, you know. But I had 12 students um, teaching them how to carve. And a lot of them, you know, I'd never touched a crooked knife before ads, you know, and you go through the whole process. But like passing on that knowledge on to others is such a great thing. You know, you see, you see like their, their eyes light up, you know, when they, when they create this piece that they didn't think they could do, you know, at the start of the week. And then by the end of the week, they have this thing that they're proud of. Um, but yeah, working working with the Port Townsend School has um, been been really incredible. It's like take it's a whole different avenue for the art form of teaching. Yeah, when you're when you're forced to put together a program, it really gets you dissecting what you're doing. 
Yeah, I put myself in their shoes and like what they're looking at, like try to visualize like what what they're thinking looking at this piece of wood, what they're thinking looking at this line they have to cut, you know. And um, yeah, it's funny. I told the other instructor, I was like, this is kind of relaxing right now to do this, like to be here. I was like, I've been like grinding for two months, painting, you know, meeting deadlines. And so I was like looking forward to this. She's like, really? Like most people are like, stressed about coming here to teach you know but the environment is so cool in there you know we get everyone kind of in a circle and we start working and creating wood chips and like another student said you know that's pretty wild that we could go you know a couple hours and no one's said a single word but everyone's worked that whole time you know so yeah that's it's a mindless activity you know what i mean yeah look, look down look up and it's been two hours but it puts you directly in that moment that moment where you're not stressed or you're not worried, you know, right. Work with what's right in front of you. Yeah. That's snowboarding for me to a T. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to think about the future or the past. Yeah. You're right where you are. Yeah. And that time loss, I think they call it a state of flow, right? Like when you have done something for two hours and then you look up, I was carving a little bit and I realized, Oh, my entire arm, is going to be sore for like four <laughs> days now because I've never done that yeah. motion. Yeah. And, and I just spent four hours doing it or whatever, but you lose the time. Can we talk a bit about cedar? Cause I've, I, I read a book on cedar at Clarence's uh, recommendation and I was just blown away by the, the deep um, connection yeah. To the West Coast and, and both red and yellow cedar. Yeah, that's our traditional wood is red and yellow cedar. Mm-hmm. You have a spiritual connection to those wood. Like we use it for everything, you know. We use it from our clan houses to our totem poles to our canoes, paddles, everything. Was Clothing. Cedar. Yeah. Yeah, the strip of cedar um, bark and use it for weaving, for hats, for mm-hmm. baskets, all these objects that are completely integrated within our culture. Um you know, the women would strip cedar bark off a living tree, you know, and use it. And, and you know, that was a, a spiritual thing. You know, you're taking this from a living thing and using it. And um, powerful, you know, really powerful. And, um, yeah, that's our, our two traditional carving woods that we use for everything. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's so awesome. I remember a few years ago I I heard in Western science they'd figured out that the red in cedar is from the salmon dying on the banks. Mm. And then the mycelium bring that to the cedar trees. Mm. And I think, wow, (laughs) that's crazy. Awesome. Yeah. They would trade for like trading was a big thing amongst Northwest coast people. Mm -hmm. And the Haida had the big, big cedar trees that our people would trade for. And that's what they would use for the canoes. That's what they used for the, the houses, the totem poles, um, all kinds of objects. But yeah, it's um, the smell too, like even teaching over there, like everyone that walks into the carving, the carving workshop is like, man, it smells so good it's in here. It's the best. Yeah. It's the best. A fresh red cedar, you know, bag of dust, even I'll bring it home, put it in the, <laughs> put it in the sock drawer or whatever. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's something uh, uh, there's something very special about red cedar, and then carving yellow cedar. 
I had no idea before. Yeah. To me, like wood is wood. Everything's made of pine, you know, like, sure. And pine is stained like other woods. But when you really get your hands on a, on a, a chunk of yellow cedar. So like uh, a couple of seasons ago, I went with Clarence up to Mount Seymour. My friend's got a cabin there and we found a fallen tree and he cut up a, about an eight foot chunk of it for me into planks turned that into a core and built a snowboard out of it mm. and the snap it's lighter mm-hmm. when it came out of the press rob dow was like it's too light he waited he's like this thing's gonna snap mm-hmm. but no man it is so lively <laughs> cool. and so amazing but just the scraps of that wood whenever i carve them down and then sand them i'm like this is like it's not like wood Mm-hmm. it's like butter or something yeah we're working with uh, at the school we're working with yellow cedar right now we did the paddle class in yellow and then the panel class is going to be in yellow cedar too rad yeah so yes yeah, the density of yellow is is really nice for carving it's um it, it cuts cross grain really well holds cuts um a little bit more effort to, to carve it but it's beautiful yeah and again, the smell, it's a different smell yeah. together, yeah. but it's, uh, you know, so distinct. Yeah. Amazing, dude. This is amazing. Um, I'm trying to think of other things we talked about before off mic that, um, like, do you stay in touch with Lando? You still, do you still shred? You still, oh yeah. 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 No, I, I, um, yeah. I talked to Mark quite a bit. Um, yeah, this year is cool because um, we Travis asked me to, to do the be a guest speaker at Natural Selection, right. and like that was awesome. Like when Travis hits you up to do something, it's like no matter what it is, you got to do it, you know. And like he's like, "Hey, I'd like to have you come out and talk and talk about the Clinkett art form and culture." And it was on Yeti Night out there in like big auditorium at in Jackson. Which is kind of nerve wracking, but like you do it, you know. But um, it was cool. Lando was out there, and he picked me up from the airport, and like got to hang with him, and um, we got to go ride too. Go up, go up there, and he gave me a full tour of the whole mountain in Jackson, which is cool. It's a beautiful mountain. Yeah, so steep, hey. Yeah, it's. We I mean, we we checked out the whole thing. You know, it was awesome. And then coming up here, um, riding Baker with Mark too is is pretty cool. Like. He knows that mountain, like oh yeah, his home mountain. So like, going out on the arm and like getting a little tour guide is cool. Too nice. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a bit about the art collective that he put together. Was that the first collective that you were a part of? Yeah, that was um shoot, that was like 2016 or so. Like um, I kept in contact with Mark. Um, we trade like like mass for snowboards. Wow. Like throughout the years. You right. know, he'd say, okay, I'd finish a mask, he'd like it, and say, hey, I'll send you a kit, you know, and he'd collect it. He has a lot of pretty incredible artwork in his house. But um, randomly, I got a phone call from him, and uh, it was like a Wednesday afternoon, and he was like, hey, like, I'm having some artists out to my house this weekend, and I'd like to bring you up and um, do your thing basically and so yeah sure by, by friday morning i was on a flight you know wow and seen him for a long time and like pull up to the airport and like jamie lynn picks me up you know it was <laughs> surreal then <Sick. laughs> we started instantly talking about you now he's such a fan of northwest coast art and i was like this connection to raven and like 
um, really cool. And, um, yeah, spent the weekend there and did art, watched Jamie like do his thing. And I got to carve and paint and stuff. And that kind of kicked it off. And he said, look, I'm starting this company called ingrained ink and I want you to be an artist. And, and he and I, we've, you know, collaborated on, um, some stuff and run, run, uh, the company together. And it's just him and I basically doing it, but we've done some cool shirts with Volcom and like, um, it's just cool. It's fun. You know, it's but, cool. We put our hand sticker on the boards and it's like big, bold, recognize, easy, recognizable. Yeah. That's sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then did Travis invite you into the, uh, what's the art collective that, wow. yeah, it was, um, the time when they're filming for fourth phase yep. and um, I was doing, that's when I, I started doing uh, really going after pieces and things started to click, you know, my form line started to improve carving started getting better. And uh, yeah, Mark would show Travis my work um, when they were filming for that project. And Travis um, had an art gallery or art collective called a symbol in Jackson. Yeah. With like, you know, like scopes on there, like Jamie, Mike Perillo, all these like heavy hitters, incredible artists were part of it. And and Travis was like, I'd like to have you be a part of Ace Symbol too. Wow. And um did a show out there in Jackson um in twenty seventeen. We did a show there and that was actually the the, the last show before we decided to close um A Symbol. But that was such a cool thing, like going out there. And that was the first like real show for me that that was like, you know, room, blank room. And you fill that thing with all your work. Right. You know, and it was fun. It was like, it was really cool to be out there and like experience that. And yeah, that was, I mean, knowing Travis too, like he's, man, like that guy is such an icon. And like, he seems to find the way to like, and like bring out, the best in you and do things like you didn't really think you could do he'll kind of nudge you along and say like you can do this wow here we go you know sick you step out of your comfort zone for sure yeah do you have a art piece that you're attached to that you're not supposed to be like your dad to let it go um something that just it it took your whole heart and you've and shoot that's a tough one um I mean, I have a, I carved a, a Keats Salk. It's a Killer Whale Clan hat I carved, honoring my grandfathers. And um, the Smithsonian had had um, one of them for like 100 years and got repatriated back. And I saw it and um, I said, you know, I want to carve a Killer Whale Clan hat to honor my grandfathers. So I, I carved it. And um, as I was carving it, it's like you, you start there's like a, a, a real magic to it. I guess a certain point where like, you know, the eyes of the mask start looking at you or like the shape just starts coming alive. And it like, it gives you like chills when you're doing it. It's starting to get to this level um, that has this supernatural magic to it. And that piece had it for sure when I was carving it and it turned out really good. And, um, it's been in a lot of shows it's every year it's in a different place um it was was in south dakota last year now it's up in alaska this year um kind of it was in denver before that but it's kind of going around everywhere but something like that you know that's my son's piece like he's he's gonna keep that you know like after i'm gone 
he'll have that within within our family for his collection. Yeah, it makes me realize how naive my questions are. Yeah, of course, that's that's the integration of what this is, mm-hmm. right? And that um, authenticity behind carving it with all those intentions. Of course, it's going to be all over the world. Yeah, of it's course, it surreal. is. Yeah, that's so sad. Yeah, I'm lucky to work with a lot of different museums um, all over the country and um, collectors and whatnot. But um, like Deb Halen, she has she's a new um, U.S. Department of Interior secretary. Um, she has two of my works in her office in D.C., which is really like wow. special. Yeah, yeah, just wild. It's cool, man. It's like there's something about your work. Like I said, when I saw it, I was just like, holy smokes, this is probably the nicest stuff I've ever seen. <laughs> you know, and like I said, I've been to museums and yeah. I've, uh, with intention to go see stuff. I think I was looking in the Cedar book at Bentwood Boxes and I was seeing... You know, a lot of things when you see how the sausage is made or you see the trick behind the magician's trick, you go, oh, okay, okay, I see. You just have to work really hard and you could figure out the sleight of hand or whatever. There's no sleight of hand in Bentwood boxes. Yeah. It is, it is like the most challenging woodworking that you could do. Yeah, I mean, you look at indigenous artists, they were highly skilled in the old days, highly skilled in a lot of mediums, a, a lot of things you were able to work with, whether it be cedar, whether it be bone, shell, antler, all these things you're able to carve. You know, Right now I have a real fascination with uh, horn spoons out of a doll sheep horn. Um, our people would carve big spoons out of it. And um, every time I go to, I get to, once you become relatively, I guess, known or good in, as a clinket artist, you could go into museum collections and like get gloves on and go dive into the collection and wow. study, study things cool. that are behind closed doors in the vault. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Go down. Um, yeah, I studied. I work with the Burke Museum here in Seattle pretty steady. Um, I just got a research grant through them. I'll be back here in a month to study um, pieces in there specifically, um, bowls and spoons, but you look at like a, these spoons and they're carved so thin and, and detailed, you can hold up to light and see through it, you know, and I've done two spoons so far and that's something that I'm going to like pursue and dive into. But yeah, the, the elegance, the skill level, um, for all Northwest coast artists is incredible. It's even teaching at Port Townsend, you know, every one of the students was like, you know, I was such a like renewed respect and like for what you guys do. Like, they're like, this is hard. I was like, you know, it's, it's supposed to be hard, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think I spent my whole life looking at native art through such, you know, just uninformed eyes, like looking at it like, oh, it's kind of simple. And then, but, but if you take 10 seconds and stop on one piece, and then looking or try that's the best thing to do is try and replicate it yeah and what you make is such a piece of shit <laughs> you go wait a minute that would have taken a yeah it's funny like um scof is an artist i look up to quite a bit he's a lip tech artist he's good friends with jamie and like he hit me up 
we talk online just checking in and stuff but he told me um he was up here with jamie in the pacific northwest and i just finished a piece and and like jamie was showing scope and like and uh they're looking at it and like jamie's like try to draw that right now <laughs> and scope was like it was the hardest thing to try to draw that you know yeah but like it's such a i mean he's so so good like i love oh him. yeah his art's oh, amazing his, but yes his lines are crazy so good yeah but like the art form of learning form line takes just years and years of understanding and and you know developing balance and composition and and within those fundamentals you learn you start developing your style and that's that's years alone that's kind of like your style within the art form and it's like signing a piece without putting your name on it you know it's yours and people could recognize it and say i know who did that you know a lot yeah. of the artists i look up to i don't have to see i know exactly it's who did it you know that's right. just their signature right yeah clarence was trying to pass that on to me just he liked um edenshaw and and then I noticed, I saw something somewhere one day, and I was like, it's Clarence's. And I noticed it was the eyes. And mm -hmm. he said, yeah, the, yeah, everybody's got their own eyes. Yeah. And then he showed me, he did, he, they're his eyes. Yeah. I was like, whoa. Mm -hmm. my yeah, it's blown. these signature little curves, like, you yeah. know, whether it be like the way they shape an eye or the, the way a line curves. Um, a lot of people develop their own style within the art form, mm -hmm. um, within the rules and guidelines that you have to follow. Yeah, I guess he was sharing the rules with me, how one character on a totem pole, the lines blend into the next. Yeah, and, well. And, and I was like, I can't follow. I mean, I can see what he's doing. Yeah. But there's every, no possible Every line is balanced off of the next line. Everything is, is in balance for a form line. And like... To, to do it properly um, just takes a lot of effort and years and years of, of studying it and just practicing drawing. But that carries over to your carving too. Mm -hmm. The better you are at seeing the composition, the better carver you're going to be. You know, they go hand in hand together. Do you have someone that sat down with you and, and taught you? Or did you I taught study? myself yeah. everything, yeah. like the whole thing. And like a lot of people can't believe that because it's such a daunting thing. But like, it's huge. I I made the you know decision that this is what I'm going to pursue. This is what I'm going to go after. And like, I spent the years studying and doing it and reading and studying old work. You know, if a museum was within you know 15 hours of me, I went there. You wow. know, and studied it. And if the clinked pieces there, I went and looked at it. You know, and like studied the old pieces and studied their composition and studied their lines you know and then just drawing like drawing all the time drawing form line you know and it, that's why it took so long you know like 14 years later like I'm, I'm now in a groove you know where things are clicking and i'm excited for for where you know this path i'm on seeing where it's going to go do you see yourself becoming a teacher like full time as um, you're getting older. I mean I enjoy doing it but it's like man I'm still producing you know what I mean like yeah I'm I'm still like hungry I still want to there's so much more I want to do and my time's like it's more I I do this I realize my time is valuable you know oh, what I mean yeah. like man I, I don't waste a second you know I, I I dedicate everything I have to this 
on top of supporting a family and like raising, you know, I have a 10 year old son, you know, and like, you know, he comes first with this, but if I get free time, like, you know, I'm not going to waste it, you know, I'm going to use it. And so like, yeah, teaching's great and I'm going to do it, but like, man, there's still, there's still so much more I want to do. Yeah. Clarence at, uh, 60, 64 years old or something. He's, he's slowing down because physically it's hard, Mm -hmm. but when he gets in the groove, like, Whoa. Yeah. I mean, it's nuts. It's nuts to see, but like you say, the time is valuable. It's really difficult in the economic system, uh, watching him in the economic system, because really you can't really hire yourself out for something that's going to be um, infused with the real passion, right? Because you can't it, you can't manufacture well, that. Passion. I think you I think you focus on being the best that you can be, and that stuff just it attracts to you. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. But there, I mean, like you said, though, there's a business side to this, and you have to be professional, and you have to deliver on deadlines. You know, mm-hmm. like I just did designs for Yeti, where they reached out to me and said, "Hey, we need five designs by this date." And I said, no problem. You know, you can do it. it. Well, yeah, it was a week and a half, you know what I mean? And so like five, you know, designs in that amount of time is like efficient. You need to do it. You know, you need to draw it, paint it, shoot it, get a digital file going. But yeah, I met the deadline and wow, that's how, that's how it works, you know? And so yeah, your time is neat, is valuable. Yes insanely valuable yes as as my friend gets older i've realized there's only so many pieces that he's going to do in his life yeah you know like because there's only that much time there's only so much time you could dedicate to it like you know you sculpt a bowl i mean that bowl is going to take you know a month depending on size month two months of the year to do that one piece but for me like i like doing like multiple pieces at once i'll have like most artists, you have like three, four things going at the same time. That way you're more productive that way. You know, and things, things are all inching closer to get done where it's mask is going to be finished. And, you know, next week the bowl is going to be done. Then I, you know, painting will be done too. But, but um, just being efficient with what you're doing. And I think trusting your ability too is important. You trust what you could do. You trust the lines that you draw. You trust the cut that you can make with your knife or the stroke with the paintbrush. You know, you trust that line and you're more efficient. That's amazing. It's amazing to hear this knowledge from you. I I can't thank you enough for for going out of your way to come and talk with me, dude. Yeah. I, I think about my email to you being in the same inbox as Google or whatever. It's amazing that I met you at a time where you would have the time to answer an email from me. You know, yeah, yeah. It's rad. No, I like what you're doing. Thanks, I, I listened to that podcast you did with Jamie, and I was like, that's awesome. You know, I, I really He's enjoyed it. He's the man. He's the yeah. best. Yeah, I talked to him yesterday or the day before Sweet. for an hour. Just, you know, about being a dad. He's yeah. at that new dad awesome. stage. And he there's something hypnotic about his voice, actually. Yeah. And the time that he takes to speak is... I'm a little more. Yeah, I've given him a, I've given him a crooked knife. Like, um, I gave him a, a hawk mask. Um, we're, he was at Volcom painting last, I think, October, and I went out and saw him. I was I was out there with my family and um, stopped by and talked. 
gave him, brought a hawk mask out for him. Like in our culture, like, you know, the hawk helps, the, is a helper of the raven. And um, it kind of goes hand in hand, you know, with him. Like, he has a new son, you know, that's going to help him. Big time. Yeah. And it's it's just so wonderful to hear him happy, you know? Yeah. And he was, uh, he sent me some pictures of his son and then some, you know, uh, videos of other um, babies, like a, a bear with cubs and a, yeah. a doe with some, some fawns. And yeah. it's like, oh, this guy's it's awesome. He's in this zone right now, uh, dad zone, and he fits it really well. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing, I told him like, is we were talking in October before Dini was due, you know, um, I said, you know what? Like, there's nothing better than being a father. Like, nothing better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he basically mirrored those words. Mm-hmm. He was like, this is it. This is, you know, I, I never thought I could get so much joy from just seeing one single smile. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's dope, man. He's a great guy and a great artist, too. Oh, Right, so good. Yeah, people love his art. It's yeah, it's nuts. I gotta have him on the show again now that we're doing video. Yeah, I think people would enjoy that. Just hearing hearing a story. Yeah, man, your story is great, dude, and it's it's just begun. Like you're just in just meeting your pace. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for like what what the future holds, and I don't look too far ahead. I focus on what's in front of me. Yeah, you know. Yeah, amazing, dude. Thanks for thanks for everything. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening to me, Gab, and uh, thanks for sharing some of your knowledge. It's super sick. Yeah, yeah, no, I appreciate it. It's been great. It's really good to meet you, man. Right. Rad shoutouts this week to James Johnson. You can check out some of his artwork and get to know more about him at jamesjohnsonnativeart.com. Thanks for doing the show, James. This was one of my favorite interviews by far. Be sure to come back next week for more F and Rad Snowboarding presented by Vans and brought to you by SIA Productions.